This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Thanks to technology, particularly the rise of the smartphone, the way we shop is changing rapidly. And so naturally, retail companies are adapting quickly to that dynamic environment and the changing expectations of their customers. There are no two better people to discuss all things retail-related than my guest today. Kathy Elsesser is the global chair of the healthcare group and the consumer retail group in our investment banking division. And Kim Posnett is the global head of internet investment banking. Kathy, Kim, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Kathy, let's start with you. In the United States, e-commerce's slice of the retail pie has accelerated of late, and it's averaged $40 billion in annual growth over the past three years. At the same time, we're seeing retail stores closing at a rate not equaled since the Great Recession. Are we witnessing a permanent shift in the way Americans shop? I think that we are seeing a fundamental shift. I guess I'd just step back and say that you know global retail sales are about $23 trillion dollars. Of that, about $2 trillion is actually an e-com. So it's a relatively small slice, call it 8 to 9% of overall sales. Having said that, as Kim and I talk a lot about, the retail sales are overall growing about 1% to 2% in brick and mortar, but e-com is growing at 14 to 15 So the real question becomes, as you have a retail world that's sort of speeding up and slowing down at the same time. And that's creating a lot of turbulence. And until that retreating and advancing that's happening concurrently settles to some sort of equilibrium, I think we're going to continue to see lots of changes and lots of shifts. We're never going to be 100% brick and mortar. I personally don't think we're ever going to be 100% econ. I think that's the key point. I don't think the paradigm is one or the other. I think going forward, it's omni-channel. And that the answer changes in terms of penetration across region and across vertical. And the way consumers choose to buy those particular products or services in each of those verticals and regions. And I think that's a great point. I'll just pick up on that for a second because if you think about that, you know, media, books, toys, the penetration is 50 to 60 percent mm-hmm. and continuing to increase. Things that you want breadth and depth that you don't necessarily need to touch and feel, where food and beverages, less than 10 percent. So call it 7, 8 percent penetration. And I suspect that will increase over time. But I don't suspect it ever gets to 50 or 60 percent. Yeah, well, Kathy mentioned this. The grocery industry is 1 percent penetrated. It's an $800 billion U.S. addressable market. Huge industry, only 1 percent penetrated. There will be continued disruption in technology innovation in that sector. And, you know, apparel is much more, 30, 40 percent. So it very much depends on the vertical. So... E-commerce is obviously growing as a portion of the pie, but the biggest players are garnering much of the new spending. Amazon and Alibaba, for instance, today represent about 1% of global GDP through the total value of what they're selling across their platforms. And our own research shop predicts that will double by 2018. So from a business perspective, where are we in terms of determining how successful a digital-first strategy can be? Yeah, we touched on it a bit. It depends on how you define success. I don't think that success is 100% e-commerce. I don't think success is 100% offline. It has to be a marriage of the two. And success to me is what is best for that consumer in that particular vertical for that particular product. And there's different approaches from an e-commerce standpoint. There's very different models. There's direct-to-consumer. There's marketplace models. There's classic e-retail models. And how you define success across each of them actually varies quite a lot. The cost structure of each of those types of businesses varies. And so we have to be very specific, and we're finding in a lot of the companies we're spending time with that the definitions of success are actually quite different. 
if you have a consumer that's engaging with your brand and you built a brand online first and they're spending hours a day engaging with your brand in different ways, whether it's research, whether it's sharing things with friends, posting things on social media, whatever, I think that's actually very successful and that is something that companies weren't able to do 5, 10, 15 years ago. And I would just add to that, if we talk about success, do we mean profitability? Because a lot of the e-com companies have created scale and growth that is phenomenal and wonderful customer service. But when you're ordering five of something and returning four, that's a tough business model to make profitable. I think the complexity in part comes from, I don't know what a brick and mortar sale really is anymore versus an online sale. So pick a specialty retailer. I walk in, I try on the sweater, I like the sweater. But I look over and I realize that there's two people in line and I decide... I don't want to carry it home. I don't want to wait in line. I don't want to carry it home, whatever it is. So I just take out my phone and I buy it in the store. I don't know. Is that a brick-and-mortar sale? And I think this whole concept of, to Kim's earliest best point on just omni-channel, what really matters is engaging the customer and selling product regardless of the specific channel because I'm not so sure we even have a great handle on that anymore. So let's talk a little bit, step back. How did we get to this point? What's changed since eBay and Amazon launched in the mid-90s? Why is the growth accelerated of late? I think, again, if you think about what the Internet provides, it's breadth and depth and convenience. And while that existed, there wasn't the connective tissue from the customer to that opportunity until really smartphones, which if you think about it, there were smartphones back in the early 90s, but it wasn't until the iPhone launch in 2007, which is still relatively new, that really changed the paradigm in a material way. I agree with Kathy. I'd say two things since the late 90s. Number one, mobile, as Kathy alluded to, and number two, technology and data. So mobile, here's a statistic that's interesting. 91% of Americans have their mobile phone within arm's reach 24-7. So if you think about the computing capabilities of a phone and how much a consumer is engaging with his or her phone day in, day out, then there's just opportunity that didn't exist before to drive commerce through that device. Mobile commerce is growing 30% year over year relative to e-commerce, which Kathy mentioned is 10, 15% in retail, you know, low single digits. And so I think mobile has been game-changing and will continue to be game-changing, especially in countries where there's more mobile penetration. And then data. Think about all the data that exists on consumers, you know, what they buy, why they buy, when they buy, where they buy. And retailers historically have not had the infrastructure or the people to analyze it. So you have to understand the data set first, but then you have to be able to analyze it and apply it to strategies to be able to potentially change a merchandising strategy or change a supply chain strategy. And I think that 20 years ago, people didn't have the ability to analyze the data and apply it in the same way as they do today. Well, I, I, until recently, I think many retailers weren't even really collecting it in a systematic way. I think it's a great point, Jake. What I would say from a retailer perspective, if you go on a site, I, the retailer, in an e-commerce sense, can watch everything you do. How many shirts you clicked on, how many pairs of shoes you looked at, what you looked at, and I can collect all that data. The second you walk into my physical store, I have no idea what you're doing. I don't know how you're spending your time. I don't learn anything about your preferences. It's a much harder dynamic to collect the kind of data that Kim's talking about to begin with. And if you're a what we call a broad lines retailer, a retailer that effectively is a distribution house for various brands, 
you don't really collect much data at all, except sort of where trends are going in various ways. If you're a specialty retailer, it's a little bit easier because there's more connectivity because it's your product in the store and you sort of have a better lens into how your customers are spending their time. But I do so. think it's it's an interesting observation that many of the founder CEOs of the e-commerce companies are technologists and or engineers guys and gals who have a data-first orientation by mm-hmm. their training and by their nature, and that's the lens through which they built those businesses. Then maybe it's limited to some retails, but if I have an app, sometimes and I walk by a store, they'll know I'm there, and I assume there's more of that coming, right? And they'll start guarding me into the store and luring me in with deals. and Without a doubt. Right? Location-based targeting and understanding the right frequency to do it with, for you, Jake, versus Kathy, versus me. The last time you purchased at the store was at that particular store versus another one. All of that is coming. And I think what's interesting is it just continues to be a convergence where perhaps on some of the more e-com oriented companies, the data was the driver and for the retailers, the merchandise was the driver. Both need to evolve. The same way we were talking about just being fully omni-channel. What I mean by that is I think the retailers need to get a lot better about collecting and using data and the e-com players need to start really upping the game as to how they create a sense of community and maybe even a physical presence, as we're seeing many of the e-com players are opening up stores. We've seen, obviously, some high-profile acquisitions. We won't name names, but traditional retailers are looking to e-commerce companies for growth, perhaps not surprising. So what do you make of this effort by a traditional e-commerce company making their way into brick-and-mortar retail? Is Omnichannel going to work for everyone? What are the online companies looking to gain by having a bricks-and-mortar strategy? There's been this cross-current outside of M&A of brands that were built online looking for offline presence. And I think that cross-current is a really important observation because I think those companies have observed what we said earlier, 90% of consumers still shop offline. So you can't ignore 90% of a consumer population if you're really trying to build a global brand. And they're not on their smartphone 100% of the day yet. (laughs) Yet. (laughs) So that's point one. I think to our conversation, there's a lot of benefit in having a strategy offline and online and because consumers engage with products and brands differently and you want to give consumers choice and option. And if you don't have an offline strategy, I think you're limiting yourself. If you don't have an online strategy, you're also limiting yourself. And so that, as it relates to the M&A question, what the traditional retailers are looking for when they make acquisitions around e-commerce are really, it's growth, but it's more importantly, it's innovation, it's disruption, it's the talent, it's, you know, the engineers, the product developers, it's all of that, that actually creates the growth. The growth is almost the output, not the input for when people are willing to pay premiums for those assets. I think it's a good point, Kim. And I think the only thing I'd add, Jake, is that it's also about perhaps ways to drive traffic in a store. So if something has been successful online in a brand that resonates with consumers, if there's an in-store placement, could that possibly drive more traffic in the store? So it's all those things plus potentially traffic drivers. It's a modern version of getting the hot designer in on your line, right? I think that's right. Get them in. So, Kim, talk about the issue with an e-commerce company scaling. Someone might have a great idea and might have the ability to build that brand really overnight globally, but how do they then manage the logistics of running a business, of getting the product to a customer in a time in which customers are expecting real-time delivery, on-time delivery? How does that small e-commerce company 
grow up. Yep. And I think it's very hard. And that's why relatively few startup e-commerce companies actually get to scale and maintain growth and get to long-term sustainable margins. There are software and services available today that are accessible to all those early stage retail or e-commerce companies that make it much easier for them to scale in the early years, whether it's payments functionality, shipping, whether it's using marketplace businesses. People typically think that e-commerce is just you build your website on a desktop, but you also have to do it on a mobile phone. There's all these services. You could do IT services. You could do software as a service. There's other elements that you can literally outsource and leverage to actually scale your business in the early years that are much more affordable than doing it yourself. And it allows you to focus on your core competency, whatever it may be, whether you're a retailer or an e-commerce company. So I think it's much easier net-net today than 10 plus years ago, but it's a real challenge in the early days. So we've seen a little bit of this change in the real estate that retail brands are looking at. What real estate's more valuable today, the spot right on Fifth Avenue, or is it the warehouse in Red Hook where you can service your customers more quickly? I think, again, it depends on who you are as the retailer. So if you are a luxury goods player, that space on Fifth Avenue is incredibly valuable, one, for traffic, two, for advertising. And that's probably a place that because the cost of the spend is relatively high, you're going to have more people want to physically go into that store. I think if you are a food distribution company who's servicing groceries directly into a home through online, that Red Hook space is going to be much more valuable. So I think, again, it depends on the exact type of business that you're trying to serve. But we've certainly seen some, going outside of the urban area, we've certainly seen some places where real estate value seems to have collapsed because mall traffic's down, people are buying more online. Is that an inexorable trend or just mall operators and others going to have to innovate? I think it's more about innovation. Look, we do have still 1,200 malls in the United States. Some estimates say that maybe it should be half the size. The best malls still continue to perform well. I think the malls that aren't performing as well will definitely evolve. And what's interesting is if you think about the fact that consumer confidence has consistently gone up, since the financial crisis. In addition to that, consumer disposable income has also increased year over year over year. And that means there's money to be spent. It's just being spent in a different way. And so it's not just about e-commerce versus brick and mortar. It's also about how are people spending. And it's travel, it's restaurants, it's media, it's entertainment, it's lodging versus the more accessories, apparel, and personal consumer goods we saw in the past. So for malls, that means more movie theaters, more restaurants, more experience-based, interactive-type opportunities. And I think that is happening, and I think that will continue to evolve. Kathy, one of the laments around America, really around the globe, is that everywhere you go, you see the same stores, and they have bought up all the retail space, and all we see are these big-name brands, whatever city we're in, whatever country we're in, whatever exit we're taking off the interstate. As this environment changes, particularly the real estate environment we're seeing with all these shops closing, is there some chance that that changes? I do think that it changes. One of the laments is the gentrification, i.e. moms and pops couldn't keep up with the escalation in rent increases and therefore closed only to be replaced by a national-type retailer or international retailer. 
as the traffic has slowed into those stores, we are seeing a lot get closed. We are seeing the shuttered results of that. And I think there will become a de-gentrification, for lack of a better word, where we will see the rents come down and mom and pop's shops will come back in a much more curated, personal way that goes along these lines of creating great service and a sense of community and the desire to support your community, especially as many more people, as we all know, are moving more into urban areas today than ever in the past. And so it'll take time, but I think it will settle out, and I think we'll actually see a little bit of the pendulum swing the other way. So when we think about some of the startups and some of the disruptors as acquisition targets, since online retail is such a big volume game, how does that impact the way some of these companies position themselves for a potential buyer, some of the startup and disruptor type companies? I have to say the best-in-class startups actually aren't positioning themselves to be bought. They're, they're just building their own brand. They're building their own brand. They're building their own businesses. They're focused on developing sustainable long-term business models. We've gone through different phases of the capital raising environment. There have been harder and easier times to raise external capital. Well, since you mentioned it, where are we now? I think it's been harder for the broader startup community to raise capital, which is not necessarily a bad thing, because over the past few years relative to let's call it three, four, five years ago, it's been harder to raise private capital. And so I think for the most part, this is a generalization, the startups have been really focused on long-term sustainability and building, like I said, self-sustaining businesses. And most of them are not building businesses to be sold. Again, the ones that have really achieved scale, growth, brand, are really building businesses to be standalone over the long term. Some of the best-known consumer brands today are actually interesting because they're, in some sense, not retail. If we think about the big sharing economy companies, they're sort of capitalizing on the fact that people don't want to buy a second home or they don't want to buy a big ticket item like a car or something like that. So how is that changing the way that we think about retail itself? Like some companies are increasingly positioning themselves as just brokers between individuals rather than traditional retail. Will that sharing economy mentality come to retail? The most successful retail concepts will absolutely marry this sharing economy notion that in large measure came from the internet world. And what I mean by that is, so let's take an example. There's selling a cup of coffee in some coffee shops. Then there's actually creating an environment where people can sit, take their laptops out, enjoy the coffee, but also have a sense of community and a place to be. That model is what's going to shape the best-in-class retailers. Some grocery stores, as you probably well know, have sushi bars inside them or wonderful restaurants inside them. That's going to drive traffic and provide the experience, which is the complete combination of exactly what we were talking about earlier, about the convergence of all these different themes. One other example, some tech stores, some smartphone stores are now offering classes, not just around their phone, but around a lot of different aspects of technology. So it becomes the community center of the technology world. And I think where you can use the physical space to drive personal connectivity will also drive sales and will bring all of these different pieces together. I think there's also this overlay where the consumer and maybe this is a generational shift, but the consumer isn't looking for ownership in the same way that they were before as it relates to the sharing economy question. And I think that there's other elements that the consumer cares about now. So they care about flexibility, optionality, access, as opposed to purely ownership. And that changes 
what retailers are offering to them. They care about community, as Kathy mentioned, and relationship with brand. And so I think that's actually a pretty fundamental shift, certainly in some industries, like transportation and hospitality, that actually will fundamentally change those industries. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think it's less about just the product. It has to be more than just the product. A bit more about the experience as a whole. Absolutely. One thing everyone talks about is that early adopters in this space are young people, and that makes a lot of sense. One thing people don't talk as much about is the income stratification. And obviously, a lot of the early adopters are people who value convenience and have more income than they have time. And so it just made their lives easier. Is that changing as these services broaden their popularity? A hundred percent. Many of the earlier adopters, whether they were young people or more affluent people, that phenomenon still exists to some extent. But many of the most interesting e-commerce companies and retail companies are innovating to bring those services and products to the mass market. And that's, I think, actually one of the most interesting themes we're seeing today. So let's step back and talk a little bit about the broader environment that a lot of this stuff is happening in. We have a lot of political uncertainty in the United States, probably every year, but it's pretty acute this year. Is that impacting, when you talk to company leaders, is that having an impact on the way they think about doing deals or making acquisitions, the prospects of tax reform in the next year or so? Is that putting a pause on activity? I would say generally my client base has been looking forward to tax reform and the possibility of tax reform, but just given the uncertainty, which you said, people aren't waiting for tax reform because there's just too much uncertainty about when and if it comes. And so they're not meaningfully changing their strategies in anticipation of things like that. I don't know if that's different for you, Kath. I would agree with that. I think CEOs and CFOs and boards are incredibly sophisticated, and they think about the strategy for their business, and they drive the strategy irrespective of external factors like that. Having said that, I think if there are businesses that companies have owned and may not cherish any longer, there isn't a need to sell them, but the hopes of having a lower capital gains tax rate is something that's now very Firmly in their mind. Front of mind, as Front of mind. Yeah. And I think if it's not a must-sell, they'll wait and see if they can get tax. So when they need to make the big strategic move, they're not going to stop. Gonna, they're they're going to go stop. ahead. But if there's something that, oh, we got to get to that sooner or later, let's see if maybe we get a lower rate in the, the future. Another big policy issue, and we've talked about it in some other podcasts, but just is the changing nature of work. And so the retail sector is losing jobs on a pretty regular basis. You know, it's lost 60,000 jobs in just the last two months. Meanwhile, Amazon's announced that they're going to hire 100,000 people in the next year and a half. But they may be hiring engineers rather than storeroom clerks. How do retail companies think about talent today? And given the size and importance of the sector of the economy, how should we be thinking about what kind of skills these companies are going to need in the future? I think it's a great question. It's a real issue. I mean, retail employs an enormous number of people in the United States. And as you've well said, that has continued to go down. There's been more than 3,000 stores closed year to date, and I suspect that will continue until we get to this point of stabilization. And so I do believe, and I do believe those people aren't necessarily easily going to be transported into maybe some of the dot-com areas where the disciplines or requirements are different. It's going to take retraining on the part of a lot of these people. On the more positive side, I think those retailers who have figured out that this was coming and have picked the brightest and best and are investing a great deal amongst their workforce to have less turnover because turnover is very expensive. And retail has always, in fairness, been a a high turnover um, environment. But I think there's a a real need for 
better people as a result of providing that experience that we talked about that's so vital to the retailers. The retail experience needs to be more than just about selling product. It needs to be a sense of community. It needs to be an education in some ways. It needs to be a real high service providing situation. And as a result of that, the employees that are working within the retailers need to be better trained, better supported, and the more that those companies are investing in their employees, the better the ultimate experience will be for the customer. So I believe there may be fewer retail jobs in the future, but they may be far more interesting and ones that come with greater investment into the employee. Do you think that, generally speaking, the retailers are looking to hire more technologists, engineers, product developers, software developers as a strategy, number one? And number two, if so, how are they able to attract them relative to the large-cap technology companies? So from an operational and strategy perspective, you're absolutely right, Kim. They're looking everywhere for those technology-oriented people, and it is very hard to attract them. Although I would say they're having some success in part because the opportunity is so great. Mm. There's so much that can be done within some of these traditional retailers. And at the same time, I do think from the end user, the employee base that's on the sales floor is getting a lot of investment on the part of the retailer in order to provide this differentiated experience. So let's just think ahead. What areas of the economy are most prime for e-commerce growth in the near to medium term? And if you think about how the retail landscape is changing, how do you things shake out over the next three to five years down the road? My lens is any industry that has not really seen material technology disruption is poised for the biggest opportunities and the highest growth. Think about health and wellness, you know, medicine. Think about food and grocery. Apparel actually is a highly penetrated sector, but there's a lot of opportunity there if you think about how traditional retailers 20 years ago sold product to consumers versus what they could do today. But there's actually a lot happening in digital auto as another example. But any industry that has relatively little technology innovation to date, to me, is where there's the biggest opportunity going forward, and it includes all those categories I mentioned. And I also think that there are going to be new categories that we don't even know. So where I see a tremendous amount of differentiating growth is on things that are enabled by technology, so consumer services, and using the obvious example of ride-sharing. That didn't even exist you know, in the form that it is today, yet a few years ago. And there's lots of those ancillary services that are so much easier to provide now that technology has become so embedded in our daily lives. So from the consumer perspective, they're going to see more choice, hopefully better customer service. What else can the consumer look forward to? I think less friction costs from the standpoint of, of course, there was an ability to hail a cab, but using ride sharing just makes it in certain areas of the country so much easier to do that. I think you're going to see that less friction costs, seamless interaction between yourself and products and services that you couldn't have done before the advent of the smartphone? I think it's just accessibility. Consumers that weren't able to access or afford certain items or services in the past because of technology disruption and data and all these things that we're talking about will be able to experience things that they weren't able to experience 5, 10, 15 years ago. Well, thank you both. Great time to be in this business. That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on June 8th, 2017. 
The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.